we began last Sunday night a series in the Psalms, and the task we have set ourselves is to learn how to pray and sing the Psalms as Christians. Last Sunday, we looked at Psalm 1. Tonight, Psalm 2. And let's begin by reading Psalm 2, which you'll find if you have a Black Church Bible on page 448. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, let's pray. Our Father, two things we ask. First, that you would help us understand what your Word is saying, and to that end, that you would be our teacher by your Spirit. And second, that we might be affected by these words. May these inspired words and the truths they convey raise our affections for Jesus, for his sake. Amen. Now, please keep the text of Psalm 2 in front of you, as well as the headings on the service sheet. Firstly, the link between Psalms 1 and 2. Psalms 1 and 2 function together as an introduction to the book of Psalms as a whole. That is clear from the way Psalm 1 begins. Blessed is the man or person Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And the way Psalm 2 ends, blessed are all who take refuge in him. In the Hebrew poetry, the first word in Psalm 1 is blessed. The last word in Psalm 2 is blessed. Psalms 1 and 2 function together as an introduction to the book of Psalms as a whole. And as such, they function together as an introduction as to how we should pray and how we should sing the Psalms as Christians. Psalm 1, as we saw last week, is an invitation to the believer to delight in and meditate on the Lord's instruction. 
That's perhaps the key verse of Psalm 1. The believer's delight is in the law, the instruction of the Lord. And on that law or instruction, he meditates day and night. That is the way to true prosperity. The believer is encouraged in Psalm 1 to keep on delighting in and keep on meditating on the instruction and not to be taken in. That's the emphatic in verse 4 in the psalm. Don't be taken in by the way of the wicked. Don't be lured back to worldly thinking, worldly behavior, or worldly allegiances. I was reading Psalm 1 with someone this week. In, of all places, Wagamama in Glasgow, as you do. And he looked up and he said, I was enticed. I was taken in by the apparent prosperity of the world. And he said to me with real understanding and real emotion in his voice, I will tell anyone that it never, ever satisfies in the end. The way of the righteous, Psalm 1, is like a tree with deep roots, stability, an encouragement, an invitation to the believer to keep on delighting in and meditating on the Lord's instruction as the way of true and lasting prosperity, which begs the question, what is the Lord's instruction that we are to delight in and meditate on. Well, that comes at the end of Psalm 2, the first instruction in the book of Psalms. Just look with me. Here's the instruction. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Take refuge in Him. There's the instruction. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, take refuge in Him. Now, I'm going to read that instruction again, and the encouragement to us is to meditate on this instruction and to find a light in it. Listen again. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Take refuge in Him. And as you delight in and meditate on these words, you, if you are alive to God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will find yourself not delighting in and meditating on words, but delighting in and meditating on the living Christ, the living Word. And that's true of this instruction. It is true of all God's words. It is true of the book of Psalms. It is true of every book of the Bible as we delight in and meditate on the inspired words of God. They are not an academic exercise. They lead us to delight in and meditate on the living Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if that's the instruction in Psalm 2, to meditate on the words that lead us to meditate on the living word, then the whole of Psalm 2, as we broaden out, is about the living word, the Lord Jesus. 
So do you see how these two Psalms are an introduction to the book of Psalms? Psalm 1 is an encouragement to the believer to delight in and meditate on the Lord's instruction. That's the principle for every Psalm, for every Sunday, for every day in our Christian life. And Psalm 2 is the content of that instruction, the Lord Jesus. But there are 150 Psalms. They're not the same. And like a multicolored canvas, like a brilliant picture of the Lord Jesus, every time you visit the gallery, you see something different in a picture. And that's true of a Sunday, isn't it? Every time you sing or pray the Psalms, you understand, experience, engage in something of Him, something about Him, something fresh. It is not an academic exercise, and the Bible never runs out of revelation about the Son, ever. These words of poetry about Jesus lead you to delight in and meditate on Him Himself. And as such, our affections for Him are raised as the Spirit of the living Christ within you makes a, a kind of spiritual connection with the living Christ that is in the living Word. That's why we feed on His Word with thanksgiving. That's the liturgy as we gather around the Lord's table. Now, let's look in detail at the text of Psalm 2. It divides into four sections. Number one, the word world rebels against the Lord and His Messiah uh, King. The world rebels against the Lord and His Messiah King. So let's read the verses again. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? That's a rhetorical question. It goes like this in the psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers who take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords? Now, an important definition. Who is the Lord, L-O-R-D, capitals in our Bibles, and His anointed? The Lord is Yahweh, the Hebrew name for God. The Lord's anointed, the word translated anointed, is the Lord's Messiah. It means the same thing. The word Messiah comes from transliterating the Hebrew word for anointed, and the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah is Christ. That sounded like an extraordinarily complex explanation. Uh, it's not. The Lord's anointed is the Lord's Messiah. Same thing. Now, as soon as you hear the word Messiah, what do you do? We jump straight to Jesus. Now, we will get to Jesus, and we must but we need to get there carefully in the way the Bible gets us to Jesus because getting to Jesus the way the Bible gets us to Jesus means that when we get to Jesus, we have a much richer picture of Him. In the Old Testament, the Lord's anointed or the Lord's Messiah was a term used for kings, priests, and in one instance, a prophet. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed by oil when they were set apart for these positions of responsibility. The anointing was a sign that God had chosen and appointed or consecrated them. 
they are the Lord's anointed. And in Psalm 2, as we'll see, the Lord's anointed is a king, God's Messiah king. It is a king in view here, and that is the focus of Psalm 2. It's about a king, but not exclusively a king. In Hebrews 5, the writer is explaining that Jesus is the great high priest appointed by God, and the proof text in Hebrews 5 is Psalm 2, verse 7, which is not about a priest. It's about a king. So why is it that in that passage in the New Testament, which establishes that Jesus is the great high priest, why does he quote from a psalm which is about a king and not a priest? Has he got the wrong psalm? No, he quotes from Psalm 2 because in Jesus all of these things are fulfilled. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Now, I've tried and tried and tried to explain that to us, and I've messed up, I think. It's not easy to get our heads around or for me to explain that simply. I'm not sure I've got my head around it, and I've had all week. Here's what's clear. The inspiration and the coherence of God's Word is no mean thing. Inspiration is, of course, supernatural as God inspires and breathes out Scripture. Inspiration, if you like, has depth. Inspiration, God's breath, has depth. A depth you can find yourself immersed in as you, Psalm 1, meditate on the words of God. Inspiration has depth. And the result is a coherence to Scripture that could only be inspired by God. And that leads us to delight in it. The richness of Scripture leads us to delight in it. But never as a means to an end. The end is to delight in the richness of Scripture in the man in whom all we could say of God's inspiration dwells. Now, the world rebels against the Lord and His Messiah King. That means people rebel against the Lord and His Messiah King. They rebelled then when David wrote the psalm, around 1000 BC. David is referred to in Acts 4 as the author. People rebel before then. People have rebelled against God ever since. It's a human condition, rebellion against the Lord and His Messiah King. What is the nature of the rebellion? There it is in verse 3, the direct speech of the rebellious, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Isn't that strikingly contemporary? What is the speech of the rebellious? Let's not be held on a leash by God. Let's cut the bonds. In other words, we will not submit to the Lord's rule nor that of His anointed one. We will live in our own way. I will have no tie with God. 1000 BC and bang up to date. Now, all this is a pretty big deal for two reasons. Number one, rebelling against the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah, is rebelling against the Lord. It's there in black and white at the end of verse 2, against the Lord and against His anointed. The target of rebellion is the Lord's anointed, the King of the earth. But the Lord's anointed is God's representative, so the rebellion is against God. You take on the Lord's anointed, you take on God. 
And that's a pretty big deal. And here's the second reason. It's a pretty big deal because you are messing with Yahweh. Almighty God. And you cannot possibly win. How does God respond to human rebellion? Now, immediately, our answer is, he gives us Jesus. And so he does. But here in the psalm, there is another picture of God. He responds to human rebellion, verses 4 to 6, with derision and wrath. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Just think of it logically. Rebelling against God is futile. It's a joke. God laughs. Now, that may not be for you a comfortable picture of God. The more we get into this psalm, the more uncomfortable we might be. The reason for our discomfort is not that this is an unusual picture of God in the Bible, but rather the picture of God we have constructed, or ministers like me have constructed, painted, if you like, is not how God has revealed Himself to us in Scripture. I came across a theological term this week. I've been trying it out on a few people. Only one. His name is Rog. Knew the answer. The doctrine of aseity. Stephen, I'm sure your dad knows the answer. The doctrine of aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Is part of the doctrine of God that God doesn't need us. In the sense that God doesn't need our worship. He did not need us to sing. He does not need our faith to complete himself, to make up something that is lacking in him. He is entirely self-sufficient, utterly sovereign, and all-powerful. Yes, he chooses to save us, to adopt us, to delight in our worship. But he does not need us to be God. There is nothing lacking in his godness. We do not make transactions or bargains with God. It is a good way to understand the doctrine of grace, the doctrine of aseity, the non-needfulness of God is the foundation of the doctrine of grace. God's derision and then his wrath, he will speak to them in his wrath. Rebellion against God will sooner or later, and God is so patient with us, lead to being terrified in His fury, in His wrath, in the face of His defiance. He will silence us. Now, do not listen to that as a hypothetical construct. These are the words of God. Sooner or later, if you do not kiss the Son or take refuge in Him, God will terrify you in his wrath.
And don't even wait till we get to the end of the psalm before you take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This little section at the beginning of the psalm is quoted in the New Testament in Acts, for example. The first time the apostles are persecuted, they're released, they gather together with the believers, and they pray, and he quotes Psalm 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, and of course, the rest of the psalm is in their minds. And what are they praying? It's okay. God is sovereign. He will have the last laugh. I wonder if in the world tonight, in some of the countries that Graham prayed for, if someone imprisoned for their faith is reading Psalm 2 and finding great strength, great courage, and great hope. Now, moving on, 7 to 9, God's Messiah King uh, speaks. The voice changes here, and now we hear the perspective of the king. It's the king speaking. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the king now says, that is the decree that has made him king. Uh, I keep looking at my phone because of the class. I should stop worrying about the time, shouldn't I? Somebody nod. Thank you. Thank you. Very kind. <laughs> I mean, just think back to these testimonies. You know, we're not kind of here for kind of bit part stuff, are we? Life is fragile. Gosh. The king says, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or literally, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 2 verse 7 is such an important verse in the Bible. Let me read it again. I will tell, this is the king speaking, the king's speech I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now, when we hear a statement like, you are my son, we immediately think of what? Paternity, genetics. In the ancient world, sonship had a much, much wider meaning to do with function or calling. Let me illustrate it like this. How many of you here, and if you like, you can put your hands up, but you probably won't. How many of you are here are working in a job or have done, or would like to, that is the same as your parents. Five percent max. In the ancient world, it would be 95. If your father was a baker, you became a baker. If your father was a carpenter, you became a carpenter. So it is not for nothing that Jesus was called son of a carpenter, and then carpenter. In other words, your identity was bound up not just with paternity, but with calling and with function. And that's a strong theme through Scripture, Old and New Testaments. Now, here is the point. 
God, Yahweh, is the king. God rules, God is sovereign. And when God anoints a king, that king, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah, becomes the son of God as far as God's rule is concerned. And so the king's speech, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is not natural birth. It's not new birth. It's sonship in the sense of being appointed to, anointed to the role, the function of God, his kingly rule. God is the king. God appoints, anoints his king. That king is son by virtue of his divinely appointed rule. And son of God has a range of meanings in the Bible, like eternal son of God. Here it means God's king on the earth. God's king on the earth. Let me trace for you quickly the use of the language Son of God, God's King on the earth through uh, Scripture. If you keep up with this, you're doing well. Let me just touch the bases. Key text, 2 Samuel 7 verse 11. Uh, David's anointing as king in Jerusalem when he was given reign over all of Israel just before David wrote this psalm. The words from Nathan, the prophet, you may have heard in the coronation of our king or queen, just to confuse the issue, scrub that from your mind, I shouldn't have mentioned it. The words of Nathan the prophet to David, just before he wrote the psalm, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. David wrote Psalm 2 shortly after. Psalm 2 might even have been David's coronation psalm. And so David the king writes, Psalm 2 in verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So it seems that Psalm 2 is about David, David, the Davidic king. But in 2 Samuel 7, Nathan the prophet, the one we just read, says, I will be to him, speaking to David, a father, and he shall be to me a son. So it seems Psalm 2 is talking not about David, but about Solomon, David's son and his son, and his son, and all the faithful kings in the Davidic line, a dynasty, a royal house, every one of them, their earthly father's genetic son by virtue of paternity. Listen again, every one of them, their earthly father's genetic son by virtue of paternity, and every one of them, God's earthly king, therefore son, by virtue of their divinely appointed rule. So listen again to the words in Psalm 2, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father, David, Jonathan, all the Davidic kings. Ask of me, Solomon, David, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's field. And David gazed to the furthest extent of his kingdom, which was about 65 miles. All the nations of the earth, surely it's not speaking about Jesus. And what about when we get to Isaiah 300 years later? And we read this at Christmas, Isaiah 9:27. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Which Davidic king is going to fulfill that? Further down the track in uh, 600 BC, Ezekiel prophesying out of that shanty town of Babylon against the false shepherds. 30 times in Ezekiel 34, God says, I will be their shepherd. I will be their shepherd. I will be their shepherd. And just at the wire in Ezekiel 34, he says, I will set over them one shepherd. 
my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he will be my son. All the way down history to Jesus until Mark chapter 1, verse 9, the voice from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You are my son, Sam, too. Jesus is anointed as God's Messiah King. He is the one that it all points to. Now, let me try and show you why all of this is important. If it does nothing else for you tonight, it will give you more confidence in the inspiration of God's words. It will give you more confidence in their depth and more confidence in the canvas that is painted of the Lord Jesus Christ. To say that prophecy is fulfilled in Him is nowhere near the mark. Hundreds of lines of prophecy and typology are fulfilled in that one man as he was raised from death. Listen again to the king's speech. The Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. David could sing that with integrity. Yes. Solomon could sing it with integrity. Yes. The line of Davidic kings could sing that psalm with integrity. Yes. But the one person who can sing it, pitch perfect, is Jesus. How do we sing the Psalms as Christians? We do not sing this bit of the Psalms. We listen to the choir of King's College until one by one the choristers drop out and we are left with a solo voice in perfect pitch, a pure and a powerful voice that sings from everlasting to everlasting and nobody takes his place. And what a magnificent king he is. What a magnificent king he is. His royal majesty. Your majesty. So scattered to dust are all the trivial, casual, irreverent ways that we can address Jesus. His majesty. And what is His Majesty's rule? I will make the nations your heritage. When King David penned these words at his coronation, he had no idea that his words would be fulfilled in little bolt holes like Scotland. Thousands of years later, when a girl from China, the ends of the earth, kissed the sun. Jesus is God's all-powerful, everlasting Messiah King, who died, was raised, crowned, and reigns, his message to the ends of the earth, his kingdom not only universal, it is unstoppable in its growth, and the Lord Jesus will return as the King of glory to judge all who have refused to bow before him in humble adoration. Now, 
our last point. Having listened to King's College Choir, and having listened to all that beautiful singing from the Davidic kings, until all we hear is the solo in perfect pitch. And if we listen to the words of the singing, we hear words like, I will make the nations your heritage, and you shall break them with a rod of iron. Verses 10 to 12 is the bit that we start singing. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Remember the Psalms are written for believers. So to those who are living as subjects of God's Messiah King, the invitation to you now is to join in and to sing, I will serve the Lord with fear. I will rejoice with trembling. I will kiss the Son. So you can sing a modern song with one line where the words are kiss the Son 84 times. And if this is in your hearts and in your minds, you can sing that with as much integrity as you can sing a 16-verse hymn. There it is in the Psalms. Kiss the Son. Take refuge in Him. To kiss the Son. The image is of the subject kneeling before their sovereign. The sovereign stretching out their hand to be kissed as a sign of devotion and allegiance. Something else, though, in the psalm. You cannot help but see that the description of God in His anointed one is a warrior. If you pick up an old commentary on this psalm, the title will be God's Warrior King. If you pick up a new commentary on this psalm, and there are exceptions, the title will be God's Messiah King. Are you comfortable with a picture of God and His Messiah in the Old Testament, like in this psalm, as a warrior? In the New Testament, with Jesus, it is ratcheted up to a whole different level. For we do not wrestle, Ephesians 6, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. That battle has ultimately been won by Jesus through His death and resurrection. But the fight goes on until the tenor of Psalm 2, God loses patience and Jesus returns as judge of all. We speak often of the power of God, and so we should. We speak often of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and so we should. We dwell often on joy, and so we should. But God, Jesus, as a warrior, is a big Bible theme. And we are recruited into this struggle, this spiritual warfare. It is war, but of a strange kind. For remember the words of God to Jesus in Mark 2, You are my son, the mighty warrior, with whom I am well pleased, the suffering servant. Jesus sings both songs. And you and I sing both songs. 
Jesus fought in this world through suffering service. That's what led to his coronation. And so must we. The Christian life, the righteous life, the blessed life, the life of true prosperity is a battle. We take to the battlefield with Jesus. Suffering service is the nature of the warfare. We keep standing by taking on and taking up the full armor of God. We carry one offensive weapon, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit of Jesus. The Word of God is our habitat, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who takes delight in the law of the Lord. The Word of God is where we find delight, and the Word of God is also our first strike weapon. Meditating on the Word of God is the only way to live. Proclaiming the Word of God is the only way to bring life. It is through meditating on the Word of God that we meet with the Lord Jesus. It is through proclaiming the Word that people meet with the Lord Jesus. And the last word of the psalm is to those living in rebellion against God and His Messiah. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in His way. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Like Jim and Zonia and Rila and Stephen. And I do not have to tell you after what you have seen tonight how much it matters that we take refuge in Jesus in this life. May God grant you the grace to do that. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that by Your grace and mercy, You would enable those of us who have not taken refuge in Jesus to be warned and to serve and rejoice and to kiss the Son with repentant hearts, knowing our need of forgiveness. And finding that forgiveness through Jesus Christ and submitting to Him as Lord and King. And to those of us who have, we pray, Lord, that this picture of King Jesus etched in this Old Testament psalm will raise our affections for Him. And that as we sing now, we would find ourselves, as it were, kneeling before His majesty, kissing His hand. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.